This podcast of the Radio Cafe comes to you via radiocafe.org, where you can find more information and many other podcasts. Technical support comes from Studio X, providing website design, hosting, e-commerce, and social media marketing, serving Santa Fe to the world since 1994. Find out more at studiox.com. I'd like now to welcome to the Radio Cafe, Amber Seeley. She's a filmmaker. Her new film is No Light and No Land Anywhere. It is screening on Thursday, October 20th at 6.30 at the CCA here in Santa Fe and Friday, October 21st at 6.30 at the Lensic. It's part of the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival. Welcome to the Radio Cafe. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. So this is a narrative film about a young woman from England whose father has had left the family when she was a little girl. She really didn't know him. She's got some photographs, but very little memory of him. She goes to Los Angeles, where she thinks he is, to find him. And the film unfolds from there. And we're not going to like give away the whole plot. But it is such a kind of interesting character study of a woman who is distraught, for many reasons, lonely, longing for something. And so much of that is communicated non-verbally. Yeah, you really like described the film perfectly. It's exactly that. Um, She's a woman at a crossroads. You know, she's, as we learn really early on in the film, she's, you know, just left her husband and she is doing this thing, going on this journey of trying to find her father, which she has probably her whole life always thought about doing at some point, you know, like at some point I will look for him or I will find him or I will see what happened to him. And she finally has the courage or the whatever you want to call it to actually undertake that journey. Um, And she's really in like a dark point in her life. Her mother passed away not, you know, too long ago. Um, And yeah, she she goes on this journey and and she doesn't really know what she's going to find or what's going to happen. And so she has these series of kind of interesting things happen to her again, like not wanting to give too much away of the plot. But um you know, for me, I was really trying to um, go deep with this woman in this journey and kind of really be with her and in her head, you know, uh, so we're not as much observing her from the outside, but we're kind of really with her. And so it was important for me in the film to have um, a lot of moments that were quite, um, I guess, atmospheric is the best way to describe it, but we're kind of really there with her rather than watching her is the kind of the way that I, I see it. So, yeah. And I think what's really cool about that, because I didn't have the words to say that, but you've really put something forward that's very important, which is when you're seeing it from her perspective, she's not an objectified woman. So many movies, and you know, most movies are made by men, and this is not dissing men at all, but they focus on the beauty of the woman, or the shape of the woman, or the allure or the whatever emotion of the woman from the outside Mm -hmm. and I didn't feel that as I was watching I mean of course you're sitting there what you know watching it on a screen but you get more caught up in her emotion than in how she looks while having that emotion. I'm so glad you felt that. That was exactly my aim and and something that I also think is really important. I mean, I think, you know, again, just not commenting too much on 
gender issues um, that go on in the world, but you know, women are quite often objectified in cinema, and and um, it was important to me that we were with her rather than looking at her and judging her. And of course, we can judge the things that she does, and she makes some interesting, maybe weird choices in the film that we maybe wouldn't yes. make. However, um, I wanted us to try to feel what she was feeling. So for example, when she's walking on Hollywood Boulevard, I really wanted us to kind of be in her shoes as much as we could, you know. I mean, cinema is a visual medium, so you are, you know, watching it. But I'm a believer in audiences are smart. You know, the people that come to see movies, particularly art house films like this, are smart people. And we all have our own really rich emotional lives. You know, we've all suffered through pains and tragedies and we all have joys and we all have sorrows and we all have beauty in our life and so I like to think that when people come to cinema they are coming with their own you know all of their baggage the good and the bad and so I like to leave room for people to kind of fill in the blanks um, so I don't hit people over the head with how they're supposed to feel what they're supposed to think what their judgment is of her um, rather they can have their own thoughts and feelings about it um, you know, because that's, to me, that's the best kind of cinema is when I'm watching something and I can either relate to it or feel myself in it, even if yeah. I don't necessarily, like, wouldn't make the same choices as that character did. But if I can really feel what they're feeling, that to me is the most powerful cinema. And so that's kind of, you know, what I was trying to do with the character of Lexi, who Gemma Brockus amazingly portrays in the film. Yeah, I mean, it was beautifully cast, this actress so good, yeah. is very present and on that line of tension but just short of annoying the audience you know because if it were if it were just like one notch more yeah. high strung you wouldn't want to be watching her yeah if she was more kooky or whatever you know yeah she, Gemma's an amazing actress I worked with her for a long time in a theater company called Shunt in London and her and I just really bonded as performers we were like we just really respected each other as actors and we created a couple of theater pieces together just little things that we were playing around with and I just always really loved her as a performer and knew she could do anything and she's also one of those actors who are um, are completely free of vanity you know she's not yeah. you know there's a lot of actors I live in LA particularly in LA there's a lot of actors who are very you know they, they really know what side of their face looks better <laughs> under the light <laughs> right. and that has its place and has its value certainly at times but um, that wasn't what I was interested in for this film and Gemma is she's never been in a film before and this is so oh, she's only been on it, stage. She's only been on stage and she's she's quite well known in the London theater scene and she is very well respected there. And I wrote this for her because her and I always ever since I left London about 10 years ago and I moved to L.A. and I was, you know, been working in the film industry and always we would just because we remain friends. We're quite close and we would say, you know, oh, we have to do a movie together and. She would say, you have to write something for me. And so I wrote this for her. She lost her father. Her father died when she was a young girl. And so just as her friend, we would often have these conversations where she would say, you know, oh, I wonder what my life would have been like had my dad been around or, you know, just just things that would come up. And so that always stayed with me as just something that I thought of with, you know, when I thought of my friend Gemma, I would often think about this. And so I took that small germ of an idea and then expanded it into this narrative that is has nothing to do with her life but is kind of comes from the kernel of, of her uh, having not had a father for most of her life do you think i mean she's a first-rate actress but having 
that little autobiographical piece of having lost her father early, do you think that brings more depth to the role because she's actually lived that? Probably. I think so. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, Gemma's so amazing. It's hard to say if she could have done that anyway, if she hadn't had that. But I think, you know, in our lives, the things we go through, bad and good, affect us and they scar us. And, um, and I think that probably affected her. And I think it enabled her to tap into a darkness that exists in life and that exists in this character of Lexi. And, um, you know, but who's to say, had, had she had a father, she probably maybe would have been the the same amazing actress that she is. Right. I think she just has, you know, people are just, I think, born with a talent or not. And she was born with it. And she um, can do anything. I mean, she can be really funny. She can be really weird. She can be really serious. She can be, you know, she can do, you know, she went to Cambridge in England. And, you know, she's very well educated and studied English literature. And, you know, she's very well read. Um, so she can do Shakespeare, you right. know, so she's just, um, you know, and she's also just an amazingly giving person, you know, she, there, I always think with actors there, you kind of, there are two kinds of actors, per, I'm generalizing here, but you're either the kind that you like dip your toe in and you don't really go all the way, or you're the kind that just runs and does a big cannonball and splashes into the pool and goes all the way. And she's, she's the latter. We're talking about the film No Light and No Land Anywhere, and here we are talking about it as really a character study of a woman looking for her long-lost father. It's also, at least was to me, in some ways, a funny little portrait of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a bit of a character in there, and not the stars of Los Angeles or the movie scene of Los Angeles, but strange ordinary people yeah for sure um, and buildings yeah. and streets and yeah los angeles is such an interesting city um for me it's it's huge and so sprawling and it really isn't one city it's multiple little cities all you know smushed in together or sprawled out together i guess is a better way of putting it um but it's it's a very, you know, I have the experience often of driving in traffic, you know, sitting in the car and driving in traffic, and that's very normal in LA. And it's always so interesting to me to sit in my car and I'm thinking whatever I'm thinking about my own life and kind of consumed with my own thoughts. And then I look around and I think there are thousands, if not millions of cars on this freeway and every single person in their car is sitting there consumed with their own lives. And that in one sense is a very bonding feeling. You can feel like, wow, we're all just in this together. We're all just these little, you know, ants, you know, traipsing along together. And on the other hand, it can be quite isolating and can feel, you can feel quite lonely and you can think, wow, like I'm so isolated. And yet look at me, I'm surrounded by millions of people and yet I'm so alone. And I think a lot of people feel that in LA, it's, it's a city that because you're in your car a lot and everything's so spread out, you don't really interact with people very much unless you go out of your way to do it. So like, you know, New York, where you're constantly on the street and you're interacting with people or London, same thing, you're on the, the tube and interacting with people. But LA can be quite a lonely place. And it also can be quite a foreign place for people who come, you know, I think people have this expectation, like you say, of Los Angeles, oh, Hollywood and glitz and glamour and big bright lights. And, and some of that is actually it's it's actually quite de decrepit and dirty and kind of sad and depressing you know hollywood boulevard is not a beautiful place it's there's a lot of homeless people there are a lot of you know people busking or that's a british term isn't it busking no we have, but, it here. Do we have it here okay um but it, you know um 
it's just not the sort of beautiful Hollywood thing that you think it is. It's actually pretty run down and, and, and a little bit more um, sad than I think people expect it to be. Yeah. And so for me, I wanted to capture that feeling of, uh, you know, Lexi being from England, she has these expectations of what Los Angeles is going to be like, and she gets there and it's nothing like that. And she finds herself really lost in this sea of, you know, tourists and lights. And, you know, and she goes to all the places that you're supposed to go. And, you know, like you go to the beach, you go to Hollywood Boulevard, you, you hike in Runyon Canyon, you know, she goes to all these places where you're, you're told to go and told her beautiful. And she has not the, the experience there that she it expected she would have when she before she'd been yeah I mean the depth of the loneliness that you feel in her it can't help but I mean it reminded me of probably the most lonely isolated moments of my own life you know and that that which have been thank god not that frequent but you know here she is mm -hmm. in a city it's it is funny when when you say I mean even in New York or London you can still feel lonely because there's so many people and I think there's a weird paradox, but the fewer people in your environment, the more interactions and real interactions you have to have. If you're living in a village, mm -hmm. you know everybody and they all know you. Well, that's what's so great about Santa Fe, I think. And I, Santa Fe is growing. You know, I haven't lived here since I was 17, but, you know, I, well, I grew up in a village and we knew everyone that lived there. And yeah. we were as kids were constantly running around to each other's houses. Here and in Santa Fe? Here in Santa Fe, yeah. And my mother my mother still lives here and she still knows everyone. And she there really is that community feeling here and that, you know, so had I made the movie set in Santa Fe, it would have been a different film. You know, uh, like you said, LA is a character in the film and it is very specific to that that city. But I think what's so nice about smaller towns is that people know each other and they look out for each other and you know my mom has friends that she's been friends with for 35 years here ever since she moved here and um i think that's really that's something that's really quite special about you know smaller towns and, and about santa fe in particular when we think of los angeles which is where you live now mm -hmm. and where the movie is set i mean we can't help but having thinking of los angeles as the movie capital of the world and the big studios and so on mm -hmm. what is the this is the independent santa fe independent film festival this is an independent film what's the independent film scene like in los angeles it's great <laughs> it really is it's really great there is a thriving community of independent filmmakers throughout the states actually you know i have a lot of filmmaker friends from seattle and from chicago and from new york and the independent film scene really is thriving in the states and um, in some senses it's struggling there's becoming there's a greater divide now between true independent cinema and uh you know studio films the studios that make independent films and they call them independent but then they they're not really independent films um so it's funny I, there was actually just an article i'm trying to remember the guy who wrote it i can't but a, a great uh blog about the term uh dan schoenbrunn i think wrote it he used to run ifp or work for ifp in new york and it was about how he thinks the term independent should be abolished that it's it's now just like this generic you know, term that anybody can lay over any film when they want to, you know, give it some sort of kind of arty cachet. And um, uh, anyway, 
I, true independent filmmakers and independent cinema is thriving. And I think a lot of that is due to the rise in digital film and the rise in digital distribution. Um, it's certainly easier for filmmakers now to make films and to distribute them on their own. And there are, um, you know, a lot of different alternatives for distribution. You can do hybrid models where you have a distributor and you do some of it yourself. And you can also just sell it to a distributor. But there's a lot of different options. Um, it's harder in some ways because you have to educate yourself as to what all the different options are and all the different, you know, paths you can take. But it's, um, you know, there's no shortage of different ways to do it. And I think that if you have the tenacity and the interests, you can, you know, you can find a way that works for you. How do you raise funds for an independent film? How did you do it for this one? Different ways. You know, each film is different. Each film is like its own child. You know, you kind of, you never really know how it's going to all come together. Um, through, you know, uh, this film in particular was mostly private investors. And we also did an Indiegogo to help a little bit with the post-production at the end. Um, and then you also get in-kind donations. So say a production company or, you know, we'll have lighting equipment that, can cost thousands of dollars and they'll say, Hey, you know, I'll give you that lighting equipment for free for a percentage of the profits at the end or, or just as a donation. So this film was cobbled together like that through a series of different, um, investments and in-kind donations and Indiegogo. Very interesting. Now you started as an actress and then got into directing. I did. Yeah. I started acting. Actually, I started acting at age five at Rio, oh my Gr Rio Grande. Yeah, I'll never forget. I played uh, the bearded lady in a production <laughs> that um, there used to be this great principal there. I'm blanking on his name. John was his first name and I'm blanking on his last name. But he used to write these totally kooky plays for us kids. And Freddie Hollins was there and she was the drama teacher. And she put on these totally great, weird theater productions. And, and I started that. And I'll never forget Freddie Hollins because she was the first person that said to me, you know, she really has talent. Like she, you know, and she, who knows, she probably said that to every single kid. I don't know. But that was the first time in my life where I felt like, oh, this is something that I can do that I'm like, this is special for me. I'm especially, you know, good at this. And, and that was the first time I felt that as a kid. And that really moved me. And, and like, and then I just kept doing it and loved it. And it's always been, yeah, I mean, I've known I wanted to be involved in performing and performance since I was like five years old. That is amazing. So then you were in England, you, you studied theater, mm -hmm. drama there. Mm -hmm. How did you make the transition, first of all, theater and film, and then directing? So yeah, so I was, so I studied theater in college, theater and modern dance in college and in high school. And then I, um, from there, I did some grad school in London. Uh, I went to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, and Central, the Central School of Speech and Drama. And um, from there, I was saying I got involved with Gemma Brockes, the lead actress in the film. Uh, she headed this theater company called Shunt, which was an experimental theater company, and I worked with them for seven years. And Shunt is very interesting because they do, uh, in England, what's called devised theater, which is you really write your own, you come up with these very weird, interesting, quirky um, theater pieces that are all different. They're like kind of experiences rather than... Um, a straight theater show. Um, but we used to do a lot of video art in Shunt and I, I just got more and more interested in the video pieces. And I also, as a performance artist, I would do performance art along, uh, as well at the time. And I would make these video pieces to perform alongside with. I would interact with the video pieces. And then 
I just started getting more and more interested in cinema and video and how to, you know, making video art. And from there, I, uh, I, I produced a short film. I acted and produced in a short film. And I remember feeling kind of frustrated with the director and feeling like, ah, he's not, he's not doing things the way I would have done them. And so from there I was like, Hey, I'm going to make my own feature. And I had seen a couple the dogma films and, um, Michael Winterbottom was quite popular at the time in England. And I got very affected by those films. And I was like, I'm going to do this. And at the time I knew nothing of like John Cassavetes and, you know, doing all these kind of, um, you know, and the mumblecore stuff, which was coming up at the same time in the U.S., um, I thought I was doing something, you know, interesting. And then, of course, one, I mean, new. And then, of course, once you you do it and then you see, oh, this is people have been doing this for decades. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so I just really I started. Yeah, I wrote and directed and acted in my first film and loved it and um, got, you know, into a bunch of great film festivals and started getting some attention. And so from there, it was easier to make the second one. And and then that my second film won a bunch of awards. And so from there, you know, you just kind of have to, it's like building blocks, you know, you just kind of like move from one to the next and the next and hopefully take steps up in your career. And, and so this film is screening at festivals, including the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival. And then what happens? Like, sorry for, this is such an American question, but like, no. how do you make money on it? Um, yeah, so we st we just finished the film th in June of this year, and we had our world premiere LA Film Fest where we won uh, a special jury award. And then, so we're just starting our film festival circuit. And then we we also we just played at New Orleans, and we were a finalist for an award there as well. And now we're here, and um, and I have a, a like. I don't know, 10 or 12 other festivals lined up that I'm going to go to. So you, you try to have, I mean, at least for this, you have a different, it depends on the movie. It depends on what your approach is. It depends on what you're trying to do. For me with this particular film, I want to go to film festivals for at least like six to eight months, travel around, go to as many festivals as I can, make as many kind of contacts on the ground. And you're kind of building your audience as you do that. And then we're also in talks with different distributors. And so there is distribution on the horizon for this film. So we don't know yet if we're going to do theatrical uh, and or digital, but it will be some version of that. And that will be at some point next year, probably, you know, if not early next year, the middle, middle of the year, and we'll roll it out. Um, as to your question about how to make a living. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I supplement it with other things. I direct more traditional things as well. And I do a lot of, uh, voiceover work and, you know, different things. I also do acting coaching. Um, so, you know, it's the, I don't totally have the answer to that, I guess. It's different for every film and it's different for every filmmaker, but most filmmakers do struggle. You know, I mean, I could drop names. I can't because it's not fair to do to my friends, but I have friends who have made films which are hugely successful and they made, you know, hardly anything off them. And vice versa, I have friends who've made movies who you've never heard of them and they have made millions of dollars off of them because they sell them uh, in educational capacities. You can sell films to schools and libraries and you know, uh, or different organizations will pay to rent your film. Um, so it really depends. It just depends on the film. There's not one real, like I was saying earlier, there's no one path. That's like a, this is the way to do it. Everybody, you know, you, you look at how other filmmakers have done it in the past and you try to copy certain things, but each film is really its own special thing. I'm asking because you mentioned before that you had investors in the film, mm -hmm. people who do in-kind donations in exchange for mm -hmm. a percentage of profits. They must be convinced that there's going to be some return for them. Yeah, they do it for different reasons. Some of them are much more traditional investors and they're like, okay, you know, because the truth is films 
directed by women actually have better return on investment. That's what the studies have shown. And so a lot of people are wanting to invest in female filmmakers because they can get better. It's really, I know. And it's not what you would think. There's a, well, there's a parallel thing. Like women, when there's corporations with more women managers and board members, they are more profitable too. Yeah. Yeah. Who, you know, hopefully. Welcome to the new reality. I know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so some people do it um, because they want a return on investment. Some people do it because they just believe in in me or my art and they like it and they want to, you know, some people just like getting involved in the film industry and they want to, you know, have their name on something. Um, so people have all, all different reasons why they, why they invest and, um, and all those reasons are great. I think, you know, what's it like to be back in Santa Fe and showing your film here? I love it. First of all, the food here. Come on, I just <laughs> I've been I've been having like six meals a day. Chili, um, like I yeah, I had Josie's chili right away, right off the airplane. I wanted to have some Josie's chili, and then also Harry's Harry's Roadhouse uh, chocolate cream pie. I had to have some of that. Um, yeah, it's like so, but it's so fun to be here. It's like there's just something about you know when you grow up somewhere that feels like what a city is supposed to feel like to you because that's what you know. Um, so to me, this is this feels like what a city is supposed to feel like. And I get such joy from just driving around town and looking at the sky and looking at the mountains and looking at the architecture. It really has a special place in my heart. And I fantasize about moving back here when I retire one day. I'm always like preparing my husband and kids for mm-hmm. one day we're going to live here again. <laughs> Amber Seely is a filmmaker. She's writer and director of the new film No Light and No Land Anywhere. It is screening Thursday, October 20th at 6.30 at the CCA and Friday, October 21st at 6.30 at the Lensic. The Lensic is, the that screening is part of a bigger gala where writer Jeff Dyer and film star Gary Farmer will be there. And uh, it's all part of the Santa Fe Independent Film Festival, which is on the web at santafeindependentfilmfestival.com. Amber Seely, thank you so much for being with us on the Radio Cafe. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the podcast. To support the program, you can go to radiocafe.org. Many thanks to StudioX.com for their technical support and web design.